Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Branko Milanovic. And today we're talking about his latest book, Visions of Inequality from the French Revolution to the End of the Cold War. And I'm also leaving a link to our first conversation in the description box of this one. So, Branko, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to everyone. Well, Ricardo, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. I'm, of course, very happy to be to see you, to be back, and obviously to be talking about my new book, whose first paper, I mean, copy, I would receive, I hope, today. <laughs> okay, so uh, in the book, basically, you trace the evolution of thinking about economic inequality over the past two centuries or so. But do you have any idea how long people have been thinking about economic inequality? Well, this is a difficult question. You know, I obviously, you know, I don't know. I'm not uh, a historian, obvious, of ancient societies. And also the question is actually, what is uh, the definition of uh, economics? Like to, to, to qualify something as an economic thinking, we, it's, it's not very simple to decide what it is. Right. Uh, I, for example, I must say that actually I've, I've read quite a lot of Plato and I even considered including Plato in the book. Plato definitely talks about the organization of economic life. He talks more about the organization of political life, but the two are, you know, very closely uh, related. So if I had been a little bit more brave and if it was not such a huge disconnect in time between Plato and the first uh, economist whom I discussed in detail, uh, François Quenet, just before the French Revolution, I could have included Plato. Another possibility, for example, is uh, Aristotle. Uh, he also talks about inequality. And the third one, which is actually quite interesting, because uh, it's not about inequality, but it's about, of course, the economy, is uh, Cicero. Cicero is actually a total neoliberal. So he's interesting for neoliberals. He was not interested in my book, interesting as a person for my book because there is no discussion of inequality. But I think he's, uh, I mean, things that he writes could be just taken verbatim and uh, sort of people would believe that actually it was somebody who wrote them today who is kind of a, a very liberal um, in domestic policy. And so in the book, you say that in selecting the authors you, inc you include there, you used criteria for judging what ways of studying income distribution are better than others. And you say that the best income distribution studies combine three elements, basically. So it's narrative, theory, and empirics. Could you explain that? Yes, uh, the, my book has, um, uh, let me just sort of introduce a little bit the structure of the book. It really focuses on six uh, foundational or probably most important economists as individuals who have had a very big stature in economics and who had also written on inequality. Having said that, I have to say that actually they have not used so much, sometimes not at all, almost the word inequality, but they have discussed functional income distribution, which I then sort of interpret in terms of the personal income distribution that we generally tend to use today. Uh, 
So the, the six are Francois Quenet, whom we already mentioned, Adam Smith, he obviously needs no introduction, David Ricardo, Nieder, uh, Karl Marx, Nieder, Wilfredo Pareto, a little bit more of an introduction because he's very significant for income distribution studies and sociology to some extent. And I end with Simon Kuznets. And then I have the last chapter, which asks the following question. Why was there eclipse in interest and studies of income distribution in both socialist and capitalist countries in the 20th, second part of the 20th century? We will probably talk about that later, so I will not mm -hmm. discuss that. But in order to actually, in some sense, uh, uh, judge uh, the quality, in some call it under quotes, of such studies that existed in the 20th century and even earlier, I had to come up with a, uh, an approach that I believe is the most fruitful for the studies of inequality. And that approach includes the three things that you mentioned. And I have very briefly to explain, I mean that actually, if you really seriously want to do a work of inequality and be influential and have something to say, you do have to have a narrative to explain to people very simply, what are the main stories? Because income distribution is always a political issue. You have to explain what are, in your opinion, main stories, main reasons to influence, which influence income inequality. Then you have to have a theory. Now, the theory is more serious. You can have it in um, different mathematical formulas. You can have it with different approaches, whether Marxist, neoclassical, whatever, you can have it in words. And actually, take Ricardo, he didn't have, you know, formula, but he had a most mathematical model that you can imagine. And um, uh, uh, third, you have to have an empirical basis. And all, all, all the others from the 19th century had much less of that simply because the data were not there. But nowadays, you obviously cannot have a theory and approach in income distribution and not substantiate that with the data. So to repeat, the narrative, theory, and empirics. Mm -hmm. So let's go a little bit into the authors. Of course, we won't have enough time here to get into all the details of their work you explore in the book, but just to touch a little bit on each of them. So starting with uh, Francois Quenet then. So how did they conceptualize social classes, for example, and how did they approach income inequality and distribution? You know, Kenne is for me quite interesting. He's a difficult author, uh, but for me it's interesting because for the first time in the studies that I'm interested in, which are income distribution, you have the definition of social classes that compete for the net output, for net income, or for what you might call today GDP. Uh, and these classes, as Kenet basically replicated the structure of the French society before the revolution, are uh, legally defined. In other words, we are talking about the estates. And the classes have uh, workers who are le legally free, but they are the, 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 in bourgeoisie also, but they are the, the tiers d'etat. Uh, so you have workers mostly in agriculture, because he talks mostly about the agricultural economy in France. You have uh, people who are self-employed and guilds, essentially, that are in the manufacturing. You have tenant farmers who uh, rent land from landholders. And most interestingly, then he has three top classes, which that he calls les propriétaires, and they consist of aristocracy, clergy, 
and government. The interesting part, and that's the second point why I actually so much uh, insist on Kene, is he defines economic surplus. He defines why is economic activity conducted. And he says it is conducted in order, I'm simplifying, to maintain society. And in order to maintain society, you have to have a surplus which has to be received by the three proprietary classes that I mentioned. One of them, government, provides just, justice and protects property, and of course, wages war if necessary. Another of them, uh, clergy, provides you know religious or or you you can call it uh, sustenance. You know, and the third one, landlords are the owners of the land, and they are you know the the best part of aristocracy. So he actually comes with two things to repeat, which are important for me. First, the definition of classes, which will play such an incredibly important role in the study of income distribution. And secondly, he comes with a definition of surplus, which of course then may be used by many, including Marx, to actually study the distribution and to also look at who is benefiting from, from work or from the economic activity. And so Adam Smith, then, you talk about him in the book as a development economist. Could you explain that and also perhaps talk a little bit about some of his main inputs when it comes to income distribution? Yeah, you know, I think actually Adam Smith can be, from today's perspective, really seen like a development economist in the sense that he was studying economic development mostly of Scotland and England, but also of the Netherlands and other countries at that time, which faced very similar issues that a typical development economist from the latter part of the 20th century would have to face in Mexico or Brazil or even today. So in some sense, he's a development economist because the, uh, the I'm not obviously saying England was a much lower per capita GDP, but some of the issues were similar. And he was, uh, his objective was, of course, as the title of the, of the chapter says, greater opulence for people. So what uh, Adam Smith introduces many things, but one thing that I especially uh, emphasize in the book is uh, a view of uh, uh, the definition, essentially, of a good and opulent society as being the society where the majority of the people, which means workers, actually he says workers, are living well. In other words, wage of workers becomes an important category which defines if the society is um, uh, successful, developed or developing uh, or not. And you know, this is a very big uh, uh, distinction between him and the mercantilists whom who actually he criticizes, because for the mercantilists, the objective of economic activity was not the wealth of workers. The objective was the power of the state and indirectly the wealth of the top class that was governing the state. And now about David Ricardo. So I would like to ask you specifically about something you talk about in the book that he theorized about income distribution and economic growth, and he tried to integrate them both. So could you tell us about that bit? Yeah, I think the integration of the two in Ricardo, again, is one of the 
key features, and I think it has not been sufficiently appreciated. In other words, yes, we know that Ricardo starts with the famous you know, sentence that the principal problem in the political economy is the problem of distribution. But why did he say that? He said that because he was essentially a growth-related economist. And the problem for him was if England continues down the path that it was with, with the, with the core laws, more and more to of total output will belong to a basically unproductive class, which is landlords. So, and then it would mean there will be less profits for capitalists, and that would mean less investment, and that would mean less growth. So in Ricardo, like in all his writings, we have an extremely um, logical path from the assumptions, which very often were maybe the assumptions that were taken to, how should they say, in a cavalier fashion, and then very logical working of these assumptions to the end. And that's why the why I mentioned the distribution and production were so intimately related, because it, as I was saying, if everything goes, or most of the income goes to the, uh, to the landowners, capitalists who in Ricardo are the only active agents, because the, they are the only ones that, have a, that use the surplus to invest. Landlords, by definition, Ricardo, don't use the surplus to invest, but to spend. Capitalists actually do use the surplus to invest and to propel the economy forward. So as you can see here, the distribution was very intimately related to, to production side. It would, of course, remain so in Marx, but I would say in terms of simplicity with which the two are related, I would put Ricardo as a number one because it is very logical, it's very simple, and it's quite powerful. And so, of course, a huge name in economics that you also include in the, in the book is Karl Marx. And there are, of course, a huge number of ideas of him that we could, of his that we could explore here. But let me ask you about just two of them. So, first of all, could you tell us about his view of the interdependence of production and distribution? Actually, this is really an excellent question because I also wanted to finish the, the discussion of Ricardo, which goes very well with the question that you asked me. Um, and uh, uh, as the title actually my chapter Ricardo says, uh, notice what Ricardo had offered to the English public and to the readers in his book. He has actually offered uh, the following sort of outcome. If the core laws are repealed and more of a net income goes to uh, capitalists, the economy will grow faster. But, and that's where, of course, I emphasize in my book, inequality will become less because the top class, which are landlords, will have now less of an income. The middle class, in some sense, upper middle class capitalists, including Ricardo himself, would have, of course, a higher share of income, and there will be growth, which might eventually, although Ricardo is very kind of careful, that might push wages up. So what I call, he actually offered a windfall. He offered the higher growth and lower inequality. So as I emphasize, there is no trade-off in Ricardo. Ricardo offers you both. And that's very important. Now we come to Marx, to your question more specifically, and there, uh, what is important with Marx is that he believes that the laws of distribution and production are the same in the following sense. He believes that once you have capitalism, 
you have a certain distribution of buses in the sense that only capitalist class monopolizes these assets. So you from that, which they are the only one by definition who have the assets because they're capitalist workers don't have assets, they have just labor power. So what then happens is that the distribution naturally is derived uh, uh, from that uh, from that ownership of assets and the type of production is derived from that. In other words, if you had a different uh, if you had a different distribution of assets, or if, for example, if you didn't have private ownership of capital, you would have different relative price structure. You would have different demand. You would have obviously different incomes. So the two things he says very strongly on that cannot be separated. Once you have capitalism with its own uh, uh, asset holding, you thereby have a distribution. And he is disagreeing, actually attacking John Stuart Mill, who seemingly, from today's perspective, was very open-minded by saying, okay, look, production follows certain natural laws and technical laws, but distribution is a social, uh, we follow social laws. For Marx, no, the two of them go together because once you have capitalism, you have the distribution. And uh, in that sense, he was, uh, uh, how should I say, um, from today's perspective, uh, he was uh, more hardline in the way that he believed that, uh, that no tinkering uh, with capitalism would actually produce significant changes in distribution. And did he have any particular ideas about how income distribution would evolve over time in a capitalist system? I mean, did he think, for example, that economic inequality would worsen over time or the reverse or what exactly? You know, Ricardo, this is, in my opinion, one of the greatest myths in economics or among economists who, in the 99.9% of cases, just have not read much. The, uh, and I will just focus on two points here. Okay. Um, the belief, belief that Marx had a theory whereby the, the evolution of income distribution in capitalism necessarily gets worse, on one hand, because of the so-called immiseration of labor, meaning the decline in real wage, and secondly, because of greater concentration of capital in the health of the few, is uh, largely... Uh, undefensible based on Marxist own writings. The first part about the miseration of labor can be found in two, uh, in two paragraphs. One in the Communist Manifesto that was written when Marx was 29 years old and before he start, started studying economics. It's a very powerful paragraph. There is written extremely well, but that's one, and you have to take it in a context when it was written in 1848. And the second, which is also a little bit incendiary, very well written, is in Capital Volume 1. Uh, the, the pressure on wages is permanent on Marx, but Marx, uh, because of the reserve army of labor, but Marx very clearly acknowledges the difference between skilled and unskilled wages, which is actually part of his definition of the labor power and complex, complex labor powers were so simple, acknowledges that wages increase in countries that are richer, 
and that they are higher in those countries. And, in, and uh, has a very similar to Mincer theory that actually, as you get more educated, labor becomes more valuable, it's paid more. So I think the immiseration is simply not true. It, I believe, uh, if the society is advanced, workers then may not get as much as the general advancement of society. And that's why there is this whole discussion that the sh labor share would go down as it has gone down in, in the United States in the last 30 years. But the real wages have not gone down. So that's the first. And on capital, he has a very strong and of course much debated view of the decreasing, uh, the, the ten tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So let's put these two together and I'll stop there. If you put together the fact that in the development, the real wage would rise, even if it does not rise as much as GDP, and put then uh, the, the second argument that the rate of profit would tend to decline simply because there is increased organic composition of capital, more, more machines per worker, you actually have a very different story, which I think is more defensible of probably polarization, but not an increase in inequality and certainly not immiseration of the labor force. So that was that's my argument. You can make a, some differences there and so on. I will not go into the details, but I definitely argue, and of course others have argued that the so-called iron law wages is just total invention. It was LaSalle who actually had that view. Marx rejected it. So it is really a myth that, that the immiseration is implied in Marx. And so getting into Vilfredo Pareto now, so he's probably best well known for his Pareto distribution. Uh, what is the correct interpretation of it? And has it been supported by the evidence or not? You know, Pareto also made a very important contribution. That's why I think actually I included him without any doubt in the book. Uh, what are the contributions? The first one, is the first he was the first to actually study interpersonal income distribution and uh, we have talked all the way up, up to now uh, uh, uh from kenne actually include and including marx of uh, of of groups of people which means social classes and essentially for those people from kenne to marx uh once i define what is your social class i define your position in income distribution, and I thereby basically derive income distribution from what economists call factor income distribution, which means ownership of assets. Pareto, uh, partly because uh, uh, fiscal data became available then in, uh, that was turn of the 20th century in Europe, uh, partly because he was, uh, he started working essentially to debunk, to the de uh, Marx, uh, although he accepted the role of class, but I'll come to that in a minute, in a very special way. And he uh, started working on interpersonal income distribution. Also, there is another element. Uh, Pareto was very good mathemat mathematically. He was an engineer, so he was actually interested in these numbers. And to put one small detail, which maybe some readers will find kind of exciting, at least I found it, how do I end a chapter of Marx? I end a chapter of Marx by drawing a Pareto line based on the tax data that Marx had from 1864, 1865 from England and Wales. You know, these day, tax data, which are exactly the same tax data of the same nature that Pareto would use 20, uh, uh, 40 years later 
to draw the Pareto curve and to draw the Pareto line, uh, was there already in Marx. Had Marx thought of double log transformation, he would have be become Pareto before Pareto, but he didn't do it. So Pareto is important, as I said, for the introduction of interpersonal income distribution and for the definition of the Pareto law, which is the first power law, and according to which the, we know, and he argued that the top of the income distribution is um, distributed and uh, looks like many of the distributions look like Pareto. Uh, his mistake was that we know by now, obviously, that he believed that that distribution really basically would follow one parameter. Well, that distribution is a Pareto distribution with an infinity of parameters. So in other words, yes, it's the same distribution, but the parameters are different and consequently inequality at the top is different. And the Pareto law, as we know now, does not apply to anybody below probably, certainly uh, people who are not part of the top decile, but in some cases it may not apply even to them. So he has made very significant contributions. And on top of that, in some sense, he had class, but under the title of elite. And uh, I would say that today's return of the top 1% in some sense is the return, if you will, to Pareto in the sense that that elite is really, the, the top 1% is the elite. And so just briefly before we get into some more general questions, touching on, of course, Simon Kuznets, which is the last author you explore in the book. So what are some of his main ideas about uh, economic inequality that you would like to highlight here? I, well, actually, the, the ideas that I would like to highlight uh, are that, uh, and they actually became more apparent to me, as I was working on the more recent period that we mentioned, which goes after Kuznets, when income distribution studies went into a somewhat of an eclipse. I would say that the most important idea there is that uh, once you a priori decide that uh, all individuals are basically agents, representative agents or agents that maximize under the conditions of scarcity and that basically behave the same and they simply have different assets that are called, the one asset is called A, another B, one can be capital, another can be labor. You are actually uh, almost uh, ruling out studies of inequality because what makes studies of inequality important is that you have to recognize that there is a social structure in a society. They are social classes. They own different assets. They are people who are of different color. They are people who come with very different backgrounds, who inherit money and those who don't. They are gender differences. So if you decide, as neoclassicals did, that none of that a priori matters and that we are going to study all of them interchangeably, you produce lots of empirical studies in the 1970s had lots of empirical work, but they didn't have political salience because then you really study things like, for example, uh, a wage, a skilled wage versus unskilled wage. We have hundreds of articles, actually don't even discuss them because they really have honestly very little to do with income inequality. 
you you study you know of the, is the skill premium going up or it's not going up or whom is going up or whom is not going up that's fine that's wage economics that's labor economics sorry but it's not income distribution income distribution is a political issue when we have earners with different earnings we don't know who is marrying whom what is the family income how is this family income distributed? How is the large family income used for children to propel them to better schools, to, to, to uh, better jobs, advantages that they get from the family? That's what income distribution study is. It is not a study, it is one very small portion of that study to look at the issues that I just mentioned. And I think, and I'll stop here for now, I think that change not only happened because economics evolved like that, it happened because political pressure was, especially in the US, to obliterate the class, to claim there is no class. It's a non-class society. Consequently, why study classes? Why divide people beforehand? They are all the same. Bill Gates and a beggar, the same. The, the beggar has to decide actually how to optimize under his conditions. Bill Gates under his condition. What's the difference? That was the, the ideology. And so just to close off this section on the authors that you explore in the book, looking across their work, uh, how much overlap do you think there might be there? I mean, is there lots of overlap? Is there very little overlap? And what would you say are perhaps some of the main ways they differ from one You know, way. there was, I did not have an, you know, these are the others I've been reading for 40 years. So they were other, I've learned still when I was writing the book, because I, I really read things that I have not read before, like, for example, their letters. Um, but uh, I was actually struck when I was writing, and especially when I finished, how there was a kind of a natural progression. In other words, I didn't select the authors because of that natural progression, but there was. Uh, you start and how they represent the, the time and the place where they're writing. And what is the natural production, the natural uh, uh, development? Uh, you start with somebody like Kenny, who has estates, legally defined classes. You move to the three key authors, Smith, Ricardo, and Marx, who have classes defined in a by their relationship to the means of production, but they are all legally free, you know, legally free labor. Then you move to uh, Pareto, where the uh, uh, class contrast has become somewhat less acute, and he actually then focuses on the top, on the what is he called the elite. And then you have you come to Kuznets who is like anti-chamber to this development of neoclassical economics that I criticized, where actually the, the distinction is now between agriculture, people in agriculture, people in manufacturing, people who are uh, working in rural areas, people who are working in urban areas, and where the transfer of labor from the rural part into the urban part with attendant higher increase, uh, increasing this uh, greater dispersion of wages and incomes in the urban areas leads to inequality. And that opens the room for the neoclassical entry that we have already discussed, where basically the distinctions disappear and we end up, we end up with empirical studies 
of inequality which have very little political relevance. Okay, so another thing that you talk about in the book after these authors is, and you show how studies of income distribution mm -hmm. went into retreat during the Cold War era. And apparently it happened both in capitalist and socialist countries. So what happened then exactly? And why did that happen? You know, that chapter is the most critical of my, of my chapters. And... Uh, <clears throat> Let me just, I open it with discussion of inequality studies or income distribution studies in socialism. This is not accidental. Uh, I think you have to start with that in order to show how very similar approach was taken in capitalist countries. So let me explain it. Okay. Why were not, why didn't exist <clears throat> serious and um, studies of inequality in socialist countries. Okay, one obvious reason to say, okay, these were <coughs> authoritarian systems. They didn't like to talk about classes as we were saying before, you know, you have to have some prior markers, some categories. So they didn't like to think of them, that they are class societies. And to some extent they were right because they actually did abolish capitalist class by nationalizing property. So the capitalist class became relatively small. Everybody technically was an employee of the state and consequently the class structure became much simpler. And when you use household surveys and do studies of socialist economies, the distinctions are between rural and urban population and within urban population between, uh, uh, there are some self-employed also or so-called, as they were called, mixed households. Uh, households that would be working both on land and in uh, in urban areas and pensioners so in other words the point was the following uh, we have become classless societies we know that the background institutions are the right institutions because that's actually what marx said and yes you can study income distribution but it's not a very desirable topic we know that all inequality which exists is really a just inequality because the background institutions are correct and maybe you have more than I, but you work more, you have great effort. So there was a discouragement of such studies, not only because you were not allowed to do them, although that existed as well, but because it was considered irrelevant as the just society has been reached, okay? Now, let's go to the West. And that's why I say it's important to see what happened in the East. Mm -hmm. What does the West notice, especially the United States? They cannot ideologically compete against the Soviet Union by saying, look, we are actually having a great class society. We have capitalists, we have workers, we have, we don't, the US didn't have landlords, but England had. You cannot compete. So the approach was politically, we don't have classes either. You guys in the Soviet Union tell us you have abolished classes. We have abolished classes as well because we have upward mobility, because we treat as neoclassical economists does, as I was just saying, we treat everybody as having different type of assets. So there was a, a, a pressure, political pressure, and the pressure which comes from money because these people who had money had an incentive to do that, and to select a particular type of neoclassical economics that would uh, fundamentally discount the importance of class structure. 
And this is what I was saying before, so I will not repeat it. But it's important to realize that it didn't happen by accident. It was a selection of the political, of the economics that was politically uh, convenient. And, you know, I, after I finished my book, I found actually some notes that somebody was publishing and discussing Rafa in his discussion of the development of economics. It was always politically driven because, and income distribution is such essentially, quintessentially political issue. So that's what happened. And that's why I call that whole period, both in socialist economies and in capitalist economies, the economics dealing with income distribution was the Cold War economics. And in a Cold War econo in economics, you had to just forget about class. You had to totally downplay class. And it's not by accident that we had a revival after the Cold War. So, you know, the, the, the argument that I put here is that there are three forces in capitalism that actually uh, downplay the role of income distribution, of income inequality. The first one is political. The second is funding by the rich. And the third one is type of economics that they have chosen to follow. And so later on, we had the revival of inequality studies. But just before we get into that, also in the meantime, we had the ascendance of neoliberalism, what we call neoliberalism, and people tend to associate it with, of course, figure, political figures like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But um, tell us about uh, what happened there exactly how it for some time went under the radar and what resulted from neoliberal policies. You know, what was interesting there is that you had the growth of the welfare state in the West, which of course was reducing and did reduce inequality. Mm -hmm. But that large experiment or not only experiment that changed, I mean, experiment that changed way of life of many people, went with very little study, empirical study, underlying the income uh, and theoretical underlying the change in income distribution. And that's what I want to, to, to say, follow, uh, say is the following. And I'll use Tony Atkinson, uh, whom I actually liked very much, as an exemplar of that type of work. But Tony Atkinson did enormous work on income and wealth distribution in the, in the UK at first and then other countries, but his main interest was the UK. But this is what I call economics without politics. In other words, you have all these changes, but we don't see what are the political elements behind them. So in that sense, there was a disconnect, and that was something what I was criticizing before, between actually political changes which happened. You know, there were strikes. There were trade unions. There were changes in parliaments. They were the, the extreme right-wingers who ended up in jail. You know, but that doesn't appear in that empirical work. Uh, and then what, in my opinion, and I don't spend too much time on that, uh, the, in, in this particular framework, uh, neoliberals are simply an extension of the more extreme extension of neoclassicals in the sense that, of course, they wanted to roll back the, the welfare state. But in terms of inequality studies, of course, they would even discount further the importance of inequality. As you know, for example, Hayek believed 
Hayek was very similar to socialists in that sense when I talked about social lack of study in socialist economies. Hayek too says we if we had perfect background institutions, all private property and no monopoly, and every income is received because you made a service to somebody else. Well, why do we study? There is no meaning, as he says, there is no meaning to economic justice. It's meaningless term. And it was very similar, and libertarians in that sense are very similar to socialists who were ruling socialist countries, because both of them say, well, we have perfect institutions. Why, why bother studying inequality? Because we know that's how it should be. And of course, in that sense, I think the, the neoliberals are just an extreme version of this neoclassical movement. And so uh, how and why did the revival of inequality studies occur? You know, I think it occurred because the, the elements that I mentioned before that were uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, not allowing the expression of uh, uh, fundamental divergences and lack of uh, correspondence of contradictions and lack of correspondence of interests among classes disappear. First, you have the end of the Soviet Union and of communism. So that pressure to claim that you are really also a classless society disappears in, in the West. Uh, secondly, I think what was quite important is the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, in that context, had it been still context with communism existing, I don't think it would have happened. But in that context, it revealed really massive inequalities and revealed massive inequalities in also type of assets that were owned. You know, the people who were affected by the crisis and who were previously doing extremely well were people with large capital incomes. So these are the people who, who for whom the period of Clinton and uh, then uh, uh, George w, uh, w. Bush was extremely good. That was a 20 years of really very large increase in real incomes at the top. I mentioned, for example, I've seen this actually, that at, uh, at these places where the rich people gather, they were actually artists who would paint, uh, uh, sell very expensively uh, portraits of Alan, uh, uh, of Greenspan, because he was the, the great moderator, and actually it was his policies, among others, that allowed them to become millionaires and billionaires. Then when the crisis hit, what the middle class in rich countries realized was essentially that their income has not re has stagnated, has not actually gone nearly, or has increased very little compared to what happened at the top. And since these constraints, which existed politically before, were removed, and I think I have to, to, to single out Piketty's contribution by bringing back the role of capital. We had suddenly capital reappearing on the scene. And that's why I think, for example, a formula which was used a lot, and some people they agree or disagree, but the very existence of the formula R greater than G was very important because it focused on thing which was not focused before, rate of return. It focused on the role of capital in exacerbating income inequality. And that was not the case before. So I think these are the forces which led, in my opinion, to a, a renaissance 
And we definitely see in terms of empirical work today, particularly with many young people who are doing excellent dissertations, we do see a renaissance. We see also the use of what is called heterogeneous agent, where actually people not only own different assets, but the, but the returns, for example, on capital different, the constraints are different. So we have really entered a different world now. And so now for the last part of our conversation, let me ask you a little bit about how in recent times, uh, there was an expanding of our understanding of the dynamics of inequality, because nowadays we do not focus only on class, like, for example, the, the Marxists tend to do, but also on uh, race-based and gender-based inequality. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, these are actually, uh, I, in that sense, I uh, end the book with the, the epilogue, which is fairly optimistic. First of all, we now can and do discuss also class. We discuss the new elite or the new aristocracy that is being formed. As you know from our previous conversation and others in capitalism alone, I highlighted the existence at the very top of what I called homoplutia of people who are rich in terms of capital that they own and income that they make from capital, and also in terms of labor because they are actually receive high salaries. It's a really new development. So we focus on that. We focus on, as I said, the, the top 1% is a new aristocracy, which probably would be able to convey all these advantages to children. But we introduce, have introduced, rightly, new markers that were present, some of them, for example, uh, uh, race. Through slavery and, and race was certainly present in Marx, was present in Smith, but we have, emphasize that because we are actually looking at the historical at the past of capitalism much more critically now than in the past and we actually have more information and we look at that thing today and we have brought gender that was discounted or actually was left aside largely by all the authors that i quoted we have brought gender inequalities we have brought uh, the fact that that uh, it was mostly women, but actually would be provided an enormous amount of work which would not be monetized, for which they would not be compensated in terms of money. So we have really expanded, and I think we would still continue expanding. And in that context, I would like also to finish by pointing out to two developments that I find also very uh, important. We are expanding now also to global inequality. And I'm not saying that only because I work on global inequality, but because I think that it's a natural expansion. And if you want to go back to Kenet, who I said before, uh, think of the fact that in those days, it was within country and within legally defined classes. That's actually what we studied. Well, now we cannot study inequality without taking into, into account the world. We are actually integrated. We, are, we have information on that. That drives uh, uh, migration that drives relocation of production. So we cannot just stay with nation state. So that's a big development, which I think really follows that line of economic and inequality developments reflecting the conditions. And the second one uh, is kind of uh, my belief that with the use of what is called social tables, which are essentially listing of social classes with their mean incomes and, uh, and uh, uh, shares of population, we will be able to learn much more about the past because we are really still very much into the darkness about what was income distribution in many countries in the past, which is important also to understand better what we have today. So let me conclude this by saying that by introducing much 
a great variety of categorical differences between people. We are able to move further and politically to move further. Because again, if you uh, say that, that race doesn't matter, let's study inequality in the US and who cares about race, you're actually missing a very large component. People who are the lower part of income distribution, not there randomly. They are there because of race being one of the elements. May not be the only element, but it's an important element. And that's what actually, as I was saying, unfortunately, neoclassical economics really totally missed out is that really when it comes to class, but to the other elements as well. So let me just ask you one last question then, because I, I'm just curious, by writing this book, what uh, do you tend uh, do you intend to achieve? I mean, do you have particular goals in mind? Do you think that, for example, and this is uh, one particular aspect that we haven't touched too much here today due to lack of time, but uh, one thing that you do in the book particularly is also you put each author in their own social, economic, political context of their time. So do you think that by presenting things in this way and by basically giving us a collection of the ideas we had historically in economics about economic inequality, it might make us rethink the way we study economic inequality also in the future? No, well, I, I hope so. I think so. Let me say first that, as you, as you rightly pointed out, uh, I introduced every author first by talking about him. There are only men, six, you know, women play a much smaller role. I have to admit that. For example, Rosa Luxemburg is one of the few that actually does play a role. Mm -hmm. uh, but I introduce not like Wikipedia like because people can read on Wikipedia that but introduce certain elements that are much less known you know for example the fact of uh, Marx's parents having to convert from Judaism to 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 Protestantism is, is an important element the which you know, there were, as I was saying, there were cleavages in Marx and the fact that Trier, where he was born, was actually uh, the three years before his birth, a French town, not a German town. And similar things also on Adam Smith that, you know, that um, his relationship with Kenney and the physiocrats and his interests. And then I put each of them in income distribution context of the time because we now have information that they didn't have. You know, Smith didn't have the data on the Gini coefficient of the of Scotland or, or England. We have it now. So that's what I try to do. In other words, to put them in their uh, social and economic context. And what I did, what was my objective? My objective was uh, to rethink the history of sort of research and thinking on income distribution. And by introducing these three criteria that we mentioned at the beginning, you know, the narrative, theory and empirics, and by highlighting how political elements oftentimes obliterate or make impossible study of inequality to make sure uh, that hopefully we don't do that again. So the objective was to look at 200 years of how inequality studies have developed through the best authors, or maybe more famous authors, to draw some lessons from that and to look at the future and to essentially, hopefully, make economists who work with inequality 
avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, we have uh, faced over the last 200 years. And also, I guess, if you allow me to say it here, that perhaps put uh, into perspective and make people pay attention to the fact that even when, as economists, they are theorizing about economic inequality or any other issue, uh, they are they live in a particular economic sure. and social context, and their theorizing also is influenced by that. Right. Absolutely, I, I could not agree more. It's actually we have to to realize, and that's kind of obvious, but sometimes important to to make a point because we are pro products of our own background and time, and uh, the economists were sometimes conceited and vain, do not want to acknowledge that. They believe that actually the, the truth, that they believe they have discovered their eternal truth. The truth, and that's where I have to quote Marx, are not, they are historical truth. They are truth for their, if they are correct, actually. Sometimes they, they are not truth at all. But if they're correct, they are truth for their own time and for their period. And we have to take this into account. And this, I think that's why this historical and relativistic view is informative for the future. So it's not, I actually enjoyed very much actually writing and, and I think, I hope some people would really enjoy reading about Smith and Marx and so on. But that relativistic historical perspective is also something, as you were saying, to actually make us think when we were today that we are sort of also either committing certain mistakes or reflecting the prevalent wisdom and the social conditions of the time. If the social conditions change, if the social system changes, our conclusions will no longer be valid. Great. So, uh, Branko, let's end on that note. Then the book is again Visions of Inequality from the French Revolution to the End of the Cold War. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview and also to some of your other work. So thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please do not forget to share, like, subscribe, comment. And to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in the description box of the interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernard Seixas, Olaf, Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Wintingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Forti, Agnunes, Fergal Cusson, Halle Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Oeira, Tom Hummel, Sardos France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez, Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Blizz, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, 
Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegu, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzka, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, George Stéphanus, Grizio Williamson, Pip. Peter Wallazin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheist, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Erringbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zool, Bar Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story. Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowley, Kate Von Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, and Jonas Hurtner. A special thanks to my producers is our web Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alni Cortez, and Nick Golden. And to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codrian, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.